A Continental Airlines DC-9 is trying to take off out of Stapleton International in Denver, but they barely get off the ground when they crash. What caused this flight to end so abruptly? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome to the Disaster Club. That's us. We're disasters. I am a disaster. With acrylics. With acrylics. <laughs> that, it turns out, makes it very difficult for me to do cross-stitching, which is unfortunate. And I have black fabric, which means I can't see. Anyway. Anyway. Housekeeping things. We're sending out ducks. Ducks are on their way. I like ducks. Other than that. We've now recorded one of two listener story episodes. Yes, we have. You've probably heard it by now. We are going to be doing a second one here shortly. We had more stories than we anticipated. But also now we're in need of more. Many, many, many more. So if you would like to participate. If you'd like to participate, please send us in stories. There's uh, some prompts in the newsletter, which if you're not signed up for the newsletter, another shameless plug. Please sign up for the newsletter. Yes, please. There's lots of cool things in the newsletter. Please validate me. As well as the trivia stuffs. Yes. Do those things with the newsletter. There's some prompts in there you can do for the stories. You can also just send us stories. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to have a specific thing. Although, if you do have a specific thing you want to cover, that's cool. That's cool, too. Let's see, what else? My brain ain't functioning. If you want ducks, you can get ducks. Order forms on the website. <laughs> when did we become a musical? I don't know. <laughs> Just now, friendo. That's right. All right. And, uh, oh, I think we have new patrons, actually. We do? Yes. At least one. Oh, I don't remember seeing anything, but I also have been so distracted lately, quite frankly. Welcome to our new patron, Alice, with the weird surname. No, that's really how their name is in Patreon. That is what it's written as. Is that it? Terry? Terry? Also, I think that was three weeks ago, though. I don't know if we already we've, thanked. We've talked if we about thanked Terry. Terry, I think thank we thank Terry. I think we thank Terry. But also thanks, Alice. Thanks. Welcome. Things. Stuff. And I, I think that's all the things and stuff. That's probably all the things and stuff. There's not a whole lot more than that. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. We have a listener story. Listener Question. question. Listener qu- I keep getting, mixing those up. Yes. Listener question. Which you can also submit on the website. Yes, you can. Any question. With that, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Continental Airlines Flight 1713. Thank you to Al, Nick's dad. Yeah, this is actually pretty fitting because we were... <laughs> now, we're a little out of schedule. We were supposed to record this on Father's Day, and this was my dad's recommendation. And uh, we didn't do that because actual hell on earth happened. Yes. So we decided <laughs> to wait. Yes. Also, yes. So, in any case, happy Father's Day. Belated. Obviously, much from the time this episode comes out, but this was a scheduled recording on Father's Day and a recommendation from my father, who I was really kind of hoping would be able to be on, but he was also taking a much-needed trip. To Canadian land. To Canadian land to go see Vancouver and meet up with friends and just have a, a short Your dad weekend has vacation. friends? What? Oh, my God. More than anybody. (laughs) This is a fact. So, this accident occurred on November 15th of 1987. This is a Douglas DC-9 14 variant. This is a short 
part of the 10 series, which is a very, very short DC-9, the original DC-9 series. This one has a tail number November 626 Tango X-Ray. And... Texas? Yes. Big part of that. Well, there's probably multiple reasons for that, but the, this DC-9 in particular, if it wasn't Continentals throughout its entire service life, which it may not have been, there are quite a few Texan airlines that owned DC-9s over the years. <laughs> <laughs> The first owner and operator of this aircraft was Air Canada. Cool. It was delivered in June of 1966. Yep. And then I found the reason that Texas is the thing. It was then sold to Texas International Airlines. Yeah, see? In November 1968. TIA was a pretty, actually, well-known airline flying just DC-9s. When we had, uh, you know, separate states had their own airlines. Yeah, yeah, like everybody had their own. Freaking everybody had their own. Freaking airports had their own. They weren't even just, like, states or cities. Like, airports had their own individual airlines. Like, Midway in Chicago had Midway Airlines. Friggin' flew everywhere from Midway. Now, here's the weird thing. The registration number that it had as Texas International Airlines was not the same registration number that it had under Continental. And that's fair. Now, it may have been a heritage thing. It may have also just been... it's a heritage thing. It may have also just been that... Continental had a very large base of aircraft in Houston. So its uh, registration number under Texas International Airlines was November 5726. Okay. That, that's it. Cool. That's a very Continental thing to do, actually, is usually just have numbers. So I'm surprised they're not the one with that. Nope. Well, anyways. Did Texas International Airlines get nommed? Maybe. Probably. Let's be honest. Probably. They went bankrupt. There were so many freaking airlines at the time. It merged with... Continental uh, Airlines. There you go. There Makes you go. sense. So yeah, it was a heritage thing. That's why they did it. Tells them where the airplane came from. Cool. Well, that there you go. A little bit of back history. This is a T-tail airplane for those that need a reminder with two engines mounted at the rear of the fuselage. Small airplane, very small. Two, three with an aisle in the middle. Two seats on one side, three on the other. Two seats on the left. That yes. is relevant. Yes. And this is, again. So, wait, is it a two, three configuration? Yes. I hate those kind of airplanes. Well, that's kind of like, uh, believe it. It's cramped inside. Yes and no, actually. Because, like, the A220 has. Which Nick two has and three. no experience with. Yeah, none. <laughs> Absolutely none whatsoever. Y'all have flown on one, but you didn't get to fly in the two, three seats. So, actually, I think they're really, they're really well set up. Actually, it makes the airplane a little more spacious because they made it just narrow enough that they can't fit the extra row of seats in, but it's just a little bit wider than what you would normally have for a 3-3 three, three for seat width. So, it's kind of nice. I think they're actually. Depending on how they configure them, I think it's kind of nice. The DC-9 was loud, to say the least. They were. It's like most planes built in the 1960s. Yes. Loud. Yes. And obviously, because we're talking about 1987, this airplane was 21 years old at the time. Which is actually, it's kind of mid to end of service life for most jets. So it's been around the block, but it's not entirely at the end of its service life yet. Most airplanes, most jet aircraft. It's going to be today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not foreshadowing foreshadowing. anything. I mean, it's on this podcast, so. (laughs) Just because it's on the podcast. I I know. Sometimes the holes last. I know, but 99% of the time, pretty much no. Actually, I don't know what that percentage is, but we'd have to find out. But still, most of the time, no. Any of those who who want to do those statistics. No, thank you. I'm good. I have a spreadsheet if you want to do those stats for us. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Most jet aircraft, their intended service life is about 25 to 30 years. 
Your intended service life is 25 to 30. <laughs> nope. I hope not, because I'm in that range. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> the. Reality is a lot of cargo airlines pick up older birds and then they fly them till like 40 years. Or so. Delta Airlines. Yeah, or Delta, who would also fly things for long periods of time. It flies old But they're things. bougie, so they get... Um, they don't get a pass for that. Flack. Well, they don't get flack, is what I meant to say. Yeah, flack. Flack. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> they don't get flack for it because they're Delta. The fact that I've flown on a 717... Have you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did we all fly on a No. No, it was just you? We this, flew with Brendan. Oh. It was that weird, what What did What did we do? Denver to Houston, Houston oh. to Atlanta, Atlanta to home. Yep. Yep. It was the Denver. a couple of days. Was it the Denver to Houston leg we flew the 717s? No, no, it was on the Houston to Atlanta. The fact that they fly 717s. Yeah. Most of them are pretty young. You'd be surprised. Most of those airplanes are only like 15 years old. You say that like that's super young, but to me that's not super young. For a jet aircraft, that's midlife. We, they we still got a lot of life stuff on. that literally got built like two years ago. Yeah, but or seven, less. Yeah, but the 753 that we flew on was also like 31 years old. Oh, so. God, it was so loud <laughs> and so old. <laughs> this is also a local flight. This one was from Denver. Stapleton. Stapleton International yeah, Airport. Not DIA. Yeah, because it was. Well, it the, was. It was DIA. But it wasn't the DIA we know today. But it wasn't the DIA. No. The Denver International Airport we know today opened. Actually, just a handful of years later. 1995 three. or two? Three. Not mm -hmm. even close to the ones, either of the either ones. No. 93. So, that said, <laughs> they were a handful of years away from the new airport. I'm sure it was very much in the works already. Oh, I'm sure. It had to be. Yeah. I mean, they were probably still, like, starting stages, but this was very much in the works. And Stapleton was a very busy airport, but it was very crammed much like many other busy airports still today. I mean, Especially because it was in the metro area. It was very in the middle of the city. I basically drive by where it used to be on my mm -hmm. work every day, mm -hmm. and it still surprises me that an airport fit over there. Where you're, not to triangulate or anything, but where you work in particular, probably was only a quarter mile from the airport yeah, at the it, time. Yeah, it was very if close. That. Yeah. There had to be, I the school was built. Yes, it was already in existence. In 1952. Right, it's old. It's old. So it was there while Stapleton was there. Right. It so was close. <laughs> it had to be like very close to a runway because, yeah. I mean, it's literally not that far. Yeah. It's so astonishing to me. Yeah. So this was a local flight from Denver to Boise, Idaho. How exciting. Boise. The captain for this flight was Frank Benjamin Zvonik Jr. Quite the name. Okay. He was 43 years old. At the time, he had 12,125 hours. First officer was Edward Brucher. He was 26 years old. At the time, he had 3,186 hours. Both of them had pretty good hours overall. This was the first of a three-day sequence of flights for the flight crew, both of which commuted from other stations to Denver in order to start their workday. The captain from San Diego and the first officer from Houston. Both flight crew arrived on time for the flight, which was scheduled for 12.25 p.m. local time. The captain signed the dispatch flight release and requested a weather update. The flight was delayed due to snowstorms impacting Denver. Shucker. Shucker. It's November and it's snowing. <laughs> what a surprise. The airplane was late arriving into Denver and therefore made their scheduled flight late. Upline delays. Upline delays. Yay. And it was probably late because of weather. <laughs> Shucker. What? what a surprise. In November? Yeah. What? Or any time of year because this is Denver. And yet we decided to have one of the busiest airports in the world. I don't think 
decided that. I think it just kind of happened. I don't know. Somebody decided that when they decided to put so many frigging gates in one airport. <laughs> You're not bitter. 77 passengers and five crew boarded the flight, and pre-flight preparations were completed. 1.03 p.m., the first officer contacted the clearance delivery to get the clearance for their flight to Boise, and he received said clearance. The flight left the gate and taxied to the de-ice pad. Visibility was about 2,000 feet at the time. Not horrible, but not great. Air disasters reported it at three-eighths of a mile. Yep. The airplane was de-iced by the de-icing trucks. After de-icing, the crew began their procedures to start the engines again and prepared a taxi for takeoff. Around that time, another Continental flight, Flight 594, this is an MD-80, contacted the clearance delivery and requested taxi to the de-ice pad. Clearance delivery instructed the flight, Flight 594, to contact the ground controller. Flight 594 did so. The ground controller told Flight 594 to taxi to the pad, at which time the flight notified the controller that they were blocked from entering the de-ice pad by another Continental flight. Which was our flight, or no? I mentioned, like, five different Continental flights. Oh my god, I could have mentioned, like, 13 of them, but I don't. They were in the story, and I don't. There's (laughs) a ton of... Everything's Continental. Oh. Yeah, we were a hub. Oh. For Continental. Well, that makes more sense. And eventually United, and then they merged. Which is... And then we were And now it's just United. Now it's just United. United has a monopoly on the amount of gates they have at our airport Oh my god, it's insane. Holy... It's it's not quite a monopoly. It's pretty bad. It's the entirety... Of B, and then they're starting to stretch out into A and C. They're going to have most of A. Jesus. (laughs) Eventually. Eventually, almost all of it. The ground controller asked Flight 594 to notify them when they could taxi again, and the flight acknowledged. A few minutes later, Flight 594 notified the controller that their path was clear. The ground controller then gave Flight 594 instructions to taxi to the run-up pad near runway 35 left. The flight crew acknowledged, but ignored and taxied to the DDI's pad. Chill. Okay. We'll talk about that later on. Meanwhile, Flight 1713 contacted the clearance delivery to request, quote, taxi from the ice pad, end quote. The controller acknowledged and instructed the flight to monitor the ground controller frequency. Several seconds later, the ground controller contacted the flight and instructed them to, quote, taxi to the pad, give way to two companies on the south side of Delta, going into there, it's an Airbus and an uh, MD-80, end quote. The crew responded, Roger, but then asked for clarification, and the ground controller responded, quote, Yeah, behind the Airbus. I think uh, he's just got out of the alleyway now. They're going northbound, end quote. 1.58 p.m. and 51 seconds. The captain called for the taxi checklist, which was completed a short time later. The flight taxied from the pad to the ramp area near the end of runway 35 left, where they were to wait for a few other aircraft in sequence for takeoff. Which were like all continental. Yep, pretty much. 2 p.m. and 56 seconds. The aircraft ahead of Flight 1713 was cleared to position and hold. Which is Continental Flight 65. Right. Okay. Now, uh, a little bit of clarification. So, runway's got a couple of entry taxiways right at the end, and there's aircraft taxiing from the north and the south to get to these entryways. So they're coming from both directions, and then they're having to sequence in from the north and the south to get onto the runway. Oh, no. So there's taxiing aircraft from both directions. There's lots of aircraft lining up for this runway. Okay. So when I say like the aircraft ahead of them got put ready to take off so on the I'm, position and hold. I'm showing Miranda the Google Maps of runway 35 left. Mm-hmm. This is all airport over here. Okay. So some are coming from this way. Some are coming from this way. That's the runway. Right. So the aircraft ahead of them got told to 
position and hold, but then there's aircraft coming from the other way that are also still in that sequence, too. This is why we could have mentioned, like, 34 different Continentals that we're not going to. Yeah. That seems a little feel like hyperbolic. It was. Being, was being a person that is not a uh, air traffic controller, I would find that to be incredibly confusing. We'll talk about it. Because of the <laughs> amount of continental flights. Not going to foreshadow, but we will talk about that, it. That's, that's foreshadowing. I just, I don't know. I'm getting this feeling like I'm already confused. I forgot what our flight number is. <laughs> 1713. I'm going to say it like 20 more times, so Kay. don't worry about it. Because there's so, like a bunch of other continental flights? Like, there is. Are you ready for the list? Hold on. So flight 1617 was cleared to take off. It took off. Okay. Continental flight 65 is now cleared to take off. Their position and hold. Okay. Ahead of them. You got, you got 16, 17, 65, 17, 13, 875. Yep. A United flight, 227, TWA, 124, and flight 594. Jeez. 594 or 584? 594. That's what it says in the report. Obviously, I'm also confused. So. <laughs> well, please continue, Nick. This is also back in the day of flight strips. I know. Yeah. That's why I'm saying that I would get confused. I mean, just talking about it now, yes. not having a radar kind of thing, but having flight strips, I can understand. Like, if you get some of those mixed up. Oh, you're my God. Will rude. we talk about it? <laughs> oh, my God. Will we talk about it later on? Not foreshadowing, but we'll talk about it later on. It is foreshadowing, but we'll talk about it later on. <laughs> so a short time later, the air traffic controller attempted to, to clear flight 594 onto the runway, but the flight did not respond. Several other aircraft departed between this next period of time. 2.05 p.m. and 53 seconds. Flight 1713, the captain prompted the first officer to advise the tower that they were in the number one position on the north side. Okay. So that he was trying to tell them, like, look, we've been sitting here a while, and we're, like, literally next in line. Why haven't we been given up? Right. So at the time, the visibility was about 2,200 feet. It was still snowing. Several aircraft landed and were on the approach at the time. The first officer advised the tower that they were now in the number one position for takeoff, but received no response from the tower. This just sounds great. Isn't it great? A short time later, the controller contacted another flight and asked if they could taxi around an MD-80, implying flight 594, for takeoff, and they acknowledged. Well, because they never received a response from 594, so they were like, can you go around them? <laughs> and the other flight acknowledged. What the actual is going on? Exactly. Well, we'll, oh, well, we will this sounds like a giant... Show. I yes. didn't mention air traffic control does not have ground radar. I was kind of keeping that one as a hold on on the down low. This is the 1980s. How do they not have ground radar? Okay, we'll talk about this later on. Keep that on the down low. I was trying to keep that on the down I low. I don't talk about it. I do talk about it much later on. <laughs> Holy okay. You yeah. might see why there's a problem. Yes, I understand completely. They're working on flight strips and they have no ground radar, so they actually don't know where the anybody is. And they can't just look out the tower because of it's snowing. <laughs> oh no so we'll get into that <laughs> oh no put a pen in that god damn it hold on to that also the fact that we're telling you all this now means things the confusion doesn't end here though and this is not the only confusing thing oh, okay continue. but we'll get there continue so at 2.08 p.m. and 7 seconds, Flight 594 did contact the tower controller and requested clearance to taxi from the pad to the end of the runway. The air traffic controller cleared Flight 594 to taxi. The other flight near 1713 was then cleared into the takeoff position, the one that was asked to go around the MD-80. Uh, Continental Flight 875. Yeah, 875. And they did so. 
After this, the first officer of 1713 called the tower again and advised them that they were in the number one position. Hey! <laughs> They're like, yo, why are you having people take off before us? We're like, here, already. At that time, the controller reached out to 594 again. <laughs> <laughs> what the actual... <laughs> and inquired if they were listening and inquired if 1713 was an MD-80. Oh my God. Flight 594, to make matters matters worse, Flight 594 did not respond because they were not monitoring the tower frequency in that moment. Flight 1713 notified the tower that they were a (laughs) DC-9. Flight 875 on the runway was then cleared for takeoff at 2.12 p.m. Shortly after, 1713 was finally cleared onto the runway. Miranda's face. I'm sorry, you guys can't see this. <laughs> I'm like trying to think through this in my head, which to make it make sense, but it's not making sense. It's so, just as confusing as it sounds. So well, one of our favorite podcasters, when they're getting told a story, they have these little dolls that they use in front of them to assign names to, to figure out like the web of who all's connected. I feel like we need to get out some of your model models. planes and just like make the airport layout on the podcast table. <laughs> For situations like this, yeah, maybe. Because you're right. He, he was telling us earlier that it was going to be really confusing. And you're right. I'm completely confused. Yes, good. I have. As is everyone. Well, <laughs> you know what's really a problem? is I can tell ATC is really confused. And that's yes. a real big problem. We'll talk about it. But there's a really good reason why they're confused. We'll talk about that later on. We'll talk about it well, later on. It doesn't hap- It doesn't help that they don't have ground radar. Right. That's a big part of it, but that is not the only reason, actually. There's a couple other really well, big key things that happen. They can't see. It doesn't help that it's a continental hub. It's a continental bank hour. Right. Bunch of continental flights. It's I, irregular operating conditions. Right. Well, and again, there's a couple other big things we'll talk about later on. Put a pen in that. But... They have other reasons to be confused, too. And when we say them to you, you're going to rage. Miranda rage warning, you're going to rage. Uh-oh. It's going to blow your mind. Baguettes. You're going to be shocked that they can even get away with this. So. Oh. But anyways, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later on. So they're, they're now cleared onto the runway. They're now yes? cleared onto the runway to position and hold. Okay. So it's their turn. Yes. To take off. Yes. Just to confirm. Yes. You are correct. (laughs) ATC is like, I don't know where these guys came from, but sure. Yep. One minute after taking off flight 875. 857. Yeah, 875. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you see why this might be a little confusing. Yes. (laughs) Believe me, I am very, very confused. Yes. Anyways. So one minute after taking off flight 875 notified the tower that there was a little clutter on the runway, implying snow and ice. Contamination. Yes. But they used the word clutter (laughs) to me that sounds like machine parts right (laughs) did a dc9 or a dc10 take off recently yeah episode 19 if you have continental also did have those and they also flew them in and out of denver a lot wasn't it a continental one that did drop the parts yeah pretty sure it was yes Mm -hmm. a a continental dc10 yeah Mm -hmm. anyway 2.14 2.14 p.m. in 31 seconds. Flight 1713 was cleared for takeoff with reported winds at 360 at 14 knots with a visual range of 2,000 feet. So the runs were actually like right down the runway. For this leg, the captain was to be the pilot monitoring, while the first officer was to be the pilot flying. The captain began making the callouts as they began their takeoff roll. 2.15 p.m. in 17 seconds, the captain called out 100 knots. 11 and a half seconds later, he called out V1. Two and a half seconds later, he called out Rotate. Six seconds later, he called out positive right. Seems all pretty normal. Yes. Three seconds later, as they were trying to climb away from the runway, several consecutive bangs were heard. 
throughout the airplane. And just five seconds after that, the aircraft came right back down to the ground, impacting hard with the left wing first at about 165 knots. The left wing sheared from the fuselage, igniting a fireball. The fuselage rolled over to inverted and separated into two large sections as it slid through the snow, coming to rest in mangled pieces. After the airplane came to rest, several small residual fires broke out, causing some damage to the fuselage and hampering rescue efforts. The first responders arrived at the aircraft and quickly extinguished said fires. Rescuers took time to reach people and assist in recovery efforts. Okay, so he says take time. Now to be fair, in the story they don't clarify. In the air disasters episode, they clarified. Okay. It took them five and a half hours to cut out survivors from the fuselage. Jesus, why did it take so long? It was pretty mangled. It was pretty, it was upside down and it was pretty mangled. And it basically sheared the entire left side, like it just ran along the left side sideways. So when you look at the injury map, which is on the Wikipedia page, you can Ooh, tell. It does not look good at all. It was all. not a pretty accident scene. So the Not that any of them are. The injury map has red for fatal, orange for serious injury, yellow for minor injury, and green for no injury. Have you There's found one no injury? And it's not even... A whole, a whole seat. That is a lap infant who is uninjured. Which is pretty miraculous, because usually they're the most likely to get injured. <laughs> that was hey, the only uninjured it. person. Wow. So. Who was sitting on the right side of the aircraft, by the way. To yeah. clarify the numbers, because it did have the chart. Thank you. You're going to be bitter about that. Not that Nick is Yes, I anything. am. In all, 25 passengers and three crew, including both flight crew, perished in the accident. Sorry. And the flight attendant who was sitting at the front of the aircraft. Yes. 27 passengers and one crew were seriously injured, and 25 passengers and one crew had only minor injuries or no injuries at all. Pretty and even split, actually. And one infant yep, was, was uninjured. Uninjured. Which is insane. Right. So, yeah, pretty even split overall, but it was pretty, still pretty ugly. And it was snowing the whole time, and they were upside down, and... One of the survivors was flying with his dad at the time, mm -hmm. and his dad did not make it. Right. And while he was waiting to be cut out, he said it was absolutely frigidly cold. Yep. And they were stuck in this aircraft for five and a half hours. This yeah. is Summer. why you wear... Proper like, clothing. Proper clothing. For both ends. And shoes, and the likes. Like, not heels, and not skirts. Right. And not flip-flops. Right. Like, you're getting into an airplane, yes. Is it temperature controlled? Usually. But if you crash, you don't know where you're crashing. Right. Or if you have to emergency evacuate. Assume you're going to have to emergency evacuate and dress appropriately. Yep. So, that's all I got. Yes, it's very confusing. Yes, I left some things out on purpose. Some things. <laughs> so. A lot of things. Well, let's get into why such a chaotic situation occurred. Okay, this investigation was performed by the NTSB. <laughs> Both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage, though there were some issues with them. Uh-oh. The CVR was fine. Okay. Just to be clear. But the FDR was a foil type, Ugh. and the foil had not advanced at the expected rate during the accident sequence and had actually stopped moving altogether for an undetermined amount of time between the previous landing at Denver all the way up until the takeoff roll. Well, that sucks. This is why we don't use foil type. <laughs> this is well, why we should we never have. digital, have. yeah. Right, this is why we should never have used foil type. Well, that's what we had back then. Very okay. unreliable. Turns out. It also had some weird discrepancies on the altitude parameter, like it dipping when they were on the ground. Love that. And McDonald Douglas was like, ah, that's normal with air pressure deviations. Dude, Jesus. McDonald Douglas 
never got their together. <laughs> they never did. They combined with Boeing and they still didn't get their together. They, you know, they built some pretty decent, reliable airplanes over the years, but it was still like, meh. they they had some issues, some things that were just like, what? You could have done better. Af- why is this an afterthought? <laughs> you could have done better. Okay. You done goofed, a a Ron. <laughs> Sorry. You done goofed. Investigators interviewed air traffic control about what had transpired and were surprised to hear that the first time ATC had heard from the flight was when they were at the runway. That's horrifying. They had not requested permission to taxi to the de-icing pad or requested permission to taxi from the de-icing pad to the runway. How the hell were they able to taxi anywhere? Did you find out what I left out? <laughs> I, okay. Do you understand why they were confused as hell? Well, here, here's my thing. is I was going to say something about it, but because there was so much confusion with all the flights, I was like, well, maybe they talked to them and I didn't know about it or no. whatever. No, they didn't. How were they? How? 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 They just they did. don't have ground radar. They just did. They just went. They no, just like, did the how, thing. How was it okay that they just did that? It's not. No, it's not. That's f***ed up. They well, just did. They went. And nobody questioned it. I would have questioned it. How were they? How was ATC supposed to know? They can't see the ground. But if they didn't talk to them, they know they didn't talk to them before, which I'm sure they were like, maybe we did. I don't know. There's about a billion different continental planes. And then the way it was depicted in the air disasters episode, air traffic control is like looking all around the tower like, where is this damn flight strip? Yeah. They They didn't have a flight strip? No. Because they weren't taxied yet, right? Because they weren't cleared to taxi. Damn. So nobody ever wrote one. So there wasn't one to pass to the tower controller which is why he kept ignoring the fact that they were talking to him because they were like clearly you have something wrong or you're in the wrong place because i don't have a flight strip for you so now they're just like why didn't they but why didn't atc say something like even more we don't have a flight strip for you why even more than that why didn't the flight crew say anything for one and two when they were given instructions to taxi from one place to another why didn't they clarify yeah. Because they were given instructions to taxi to the ice pad after they were finished de-icing. And they didn't they never clarified that to the air traffic controller. They never said, "Hey, we already de-iced. We're now heading for takeoff." So everyone's confused as hell. Yeah. You might see how there might be some confusion, and that's not all. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Now, Nick didn't quantify how far off the ground the flight got. It wasn't very far. Obviously, given that the aircraft was only like, I don't know, 20 feet off the ground. Coupled with this report from air traffic control, investigators were concerned about whether or not it even got de-iced. Which they say they did. Fair. If a plane doesn't get de-iced while in icing conditions, ice forms along the wing and severely limits the wing's ability to produce lift as air rushes over and under it since it's no longer the same shape. If you need a description, you should go back to episode four, Golgan Air. Or you can look at the Miranda Sode number two, which is Air Florida Flight 90. Which is in the sea also section of this flight. They were assured that Flight 1713 was de-iced. Solid. Right. Were they de-iced properly? Yes. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Next, investigators were concerned over the configuration on takeoff. The crash of Northwest Flight 255 was almost exactly three months prior and had crashed on takeoff because they had not extended their flaps for takeoff. So, you know, it was kind of on the investigators' minds. They're like, hmm, this looks familiar. We've covered that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was the one where the four-year-old survived. (gasps) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She was crunched over in a seat, right? I don't remember how she survived. Was that the eight-year-old? I don't remember. I don't. Anyway, it was immediately evident, though, from the wreckage that the flaps were extended. So, yep. so they were in proper configuration. Yep. 
Next, investigators took a look at the layout of Stapleton International Airport. At the time of the accident, runway 35 left was being used for takeoff and runway 35 right was being used for landings. And the two are about 1,600 feet apart, which is actually pretty close. It is. The reason for concern was that there was so much traffic on the day of the accident, investigators suspected that wake turbulence may have actually prevented the accident aircraft from getting lift. But there was, like, sounds, though. Like, cr- like cr- crunchy sounds, right? Like, there were sounds. There was bang sounds. That, we'll talk about that yeah. in a minute. We'll get there. The plane that had landed most recently, three minutes prior, in fact, was Delta Flight 367 and was a 767, an aircraft classified as heavy for the purposes of wake turbulence because its wake vortices, horizontal vortices that are generated by the wingtips, last longer when the aircraft is heavier. In fact, if a 767 weighs 300,000 pounds, it can generate vortices that can travel 1,700 feet laterally and linger for three and a half minutes. And these two parameters place Flight 1713 directly in the way of the wake turbulence. Oh, well, that's not good. But in my previous sentence, there were a lot of ifs and cans. If a 767 weighs 300,000 pounds. Well, it didn't. It only weighed 232,000 pounds because it was a landing. Yep. It because burned. it had no more fuel. Uh-huh. Vortices can linger for three and a half minutes. If winds are calm and not dispersing the vortices. But it was snowing. Weather reports reported that the wind was gusting up to 17 knots. Investigators ultimately decided after like three pages of analysis. It's not wake turbulence. It ain't wake turbulence. You're correct. It's not. I would like to announce that most of the analysis was talking about the wake turbulence. I'm like, thank you. I understand. Can there we move on? There is no wake turbulence. Thank you. Yep. The reason that they lingered on that so long is that was Continental's suspicion. Ah. So they had to be like, no, you're wrong. Yeah, they tried to play the game and say that, oh, it was their fault. No. Because it's your fault. And it isn't mine at all. (laughs) No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. (laughs) So investigators went over everything they knew already and decided to get a timeline of the flight's activity since they were in the dark for a large portion of it due to the FDR being out and ATC being in the dark as well. That seems fair. De-icing was completed at 147. They knew this from the CVR, which had actually even picked up the sounds of the pressurized de-icing fluid hitting the plane like a much less fun version of a car wash. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it was described in the Air Disasters episode. Investigators commended Denver's de-icing system as it used both fixed de-icing snorkels. Snorkels? I don't know what that is. As well as mobile de-icing trucks. And it was a very quick and efficient system and remains so to this day, in case you were curious. Once de-iced per Continental's procedures, they have 20 minutes to take off or else they risk ice developing once more. It took the pilots four minutes to restart the engines. Then another three minutes for the pre-taxi checklist, and then they were on the move and taxiing to the runway. Anyone see the problem yet? There were two Continental flights ahead of them. They had eight minutes to take off. Continental flight 1617 was cleared for takeoff. Five minutes remaining. Continental flight 65 cleared for takeoff. Two minutes remaining. Continental 594 taxiing to position and hold runway 35 left. What? Yeah, that's not them. Excuse me? That's an MD-80. That's still de-icing over there. The controller seems to have lost track of who's in line. So the first officer says, Continental 1713 is number one. So air traffic control is uh, lost. Maybe because you didn't get any kind of communication from ATC at all. And they mm-hmm. didn't even know you existed. So mm-hmm. they have the next plane, Continental Flight 875, go around 1713 and take off. Eventually, air traffic control figures their shit out and clears Flight 1713 for takeoff. But then it's too late. 27 minutes after de-icing. And so they have some ice contamination on the wings. Is there any way we confirm that ice is on the wings? Well, surviving <gasps> passengers are like, there was ice on the wings. 
So it went back into the it went back into the the engines, huh? It didn't go back into the engines. There's just ice on the wing. Yeah, and actually, there's so there's a few. There's still quite actually quite a bit we have to cover. But <laughs> I got more. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you keep going because we'll, we'll talk about all this afterward. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle still have to fall into place. So surviving passengers said they saw patches of ice on the wings. Okay, can we like science that a little bit more? Like, can we quantify? quantify? Thank you. How much? Investigators used weather reports for the area and were able to calculate that less than a third of an inch, 0.292 inches to be exact, may have melted on the wing surface, thus diluting the de-icing solution and then refreezing as ice. 0.292 inches of snow becomes 0.032 inches of water, which freezes to a surface resembling 30 to 40 grit sandpaper, like salt particle size grit. Lord. Does that really have that much of an effect? Investigators collected performance data from McDonnell Douglas and found that, yeah, it really does have that much of an effect. Yeah, it can. Definitely. It has like a 20% performance reduction. That's, that's great. That's a lot. That, that, for 30 to 40 grit sandpaper on your wing, that's a lot. Yeah. That level of wing contamination requires a takeoff reference speed 20 knots higher than previously calculated. Furthermore, if a stall results from such contamination, a stick shaker warning will not occur as the sensors on board are not aware of the airframe contamination and will assume the flight is still within stall parameters. But, okay, like, stop me if you've heard this before, right? But, like, do they not have anti-ice? They do, but it won't affect the top of the wings. I guess that's true. It'll only affect the leading edge. Mm-hmm. Which is critical, don't get me wrong. But it's not going to affect the, the top of the wings, which is what they're actually referring to. And here. this accident has layers. So we're still on layer like two. There's some really big pieces we still need to put into place. I'm not even there yet. I need a mow. This is why I, like, I'm trying not to steal the thunder. He's trying very hard. He's, he's being very good. Pat, pat. Because I have a lot of things I want to talk about and a lot of things I want to say, but I can't yet. Because there's some really big things that still so, need to fall into place. let's talk about the takeoff. Did they use appropriate speeds? We now know that they have to have a reference speed 20 knots higher than intended. Their reference speed was set to 145 knots, so they need to reach... Okay, say that again. <laughs> Their reference speed was set to 145 knots, so they really needed... Because they need to add 20. Oh, 165? With the contamination. And the FDR says they got there! So what the hell? Okay, so <laughs> contamination, but like, it didn't matter. Investigators were stumped until they took a look at one parameter on the FDR. Normal takeoff is at a five to six degree pitch, so you don't do something drastic like, I don't know, strike the tail. And this pitch is achieved at a certain rotation speed of about three degrees per second. So, you know, it takes like two seconds to achieve initial rotation. And the first officer had pulled up at twice that rotation speed. Very quickly. Why? And ended up rotating to 14 degrees nose up, which also happens to be the stall angle of attack. I was going to say, uh, stalling? Anybody? So those bangs you heard? Compressor stalls. Those were compressor stalls. The engine was compressor stalling? Yes, uh -huh. because he had pitched up so quickly. The they engines, didn't get airflow. The engine stopped receiving airflow and they backfired. What the hell? Doing so prevented air from going over the wing properly, the already contaminated wing that is, and both problems caused the aircraft to stall. And then they, they fell. Okay. How could so, the first officer have made such a simple yeah, mistake? So tell me. So now we have some other Inform big things me. to talk about. Why the hell did he pull up so damn much? Investigators poured through his training records and found that he had a uh, less than stellar record. During his flight exam in May of 1986, he flew right past an assigned holding fix and then proceeded to botch the approach during a check flight. His record had a slew of failed check rides, and he had a record of not doing well in turboprops, which he had been flying at the time. So how in the hell did Continental hire him, you might ask? 
How in the hell was he even able to fly anymore? Rather than fess up, previous employers said that he left of his own accord and they did not disclose to Continental that he had actually left because of an inability to pass a flying oh check ride. Oh my god, are you kidding me? They actually reported him to be a very good pilot. Why they, would you lie? They should not have done. Why would you lie? Both crew had met and in some instances exceeded the minimum federal requirements and accepted industry standards, and much respect was had for Continental's DC-9 training program as it was the oldest at the airline. But even Continental logged the first officer's difficulties with the DC-9, stating that he had to have extra simulator time before being released to line operations. Then, all of his initial operating experience, or IOE, was done while performing the duties of second-in-command, but then the permit completion was done by observing from the jump seat. What? So he didn't actually fly the airplane at all or do anything, any crew duty, anything. During that check ride. So the check pilot wasn't actually able to evaluate his performance. I don't know how the hell they got away with that. So four months after being hired to Continental and flying large passenger planes for a whopping 36 flight hours. I don't know if you noticed, but Nick neglected to provide the crew's flight time on this type. I was going to ask. I didn't neglect. I purposefully left it out. This was a conversation we had before we started. The first officer only on 36 hours on the DC-9. What? Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. And then he crashed. But it gets worse. How could it get worse? It gets worse. So why didn't the captain correct him? I mean, he didn't really have a lot of time to correct him. Turns out he had only been a captain for a few weeks. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. But it's her reaction that I'm laughing at. It's not the... And the two had never flown together, nor had either of them ever flown DC-9 in icing conditions. Why are we putting unexperienced crew members together? Why are we doing that? Guess who had the same question? Why are we doing that? (laughs) Guess what's in the recommendations? I bet you can figure it out. Why... Why are we putting two very not experienced people, one of whom is having issues and only has 36 hours on the damn airplane on the same flight? How many hours does the captain have on this airplane? 166. Still better than 36. Not by much. Not by much. And why are we having them do this? In icing conditions when neither of them have flown in icing conditions before? On the DC-9. On this particular airplane? Investigators particularly poo-pooed the fact that under then-present FAA regulations, it was possible, depending on the simulator, that the first time a first officer touches the controls of an actual airplane could be done with passengers on board and an unexperienced captain paired with him. They were very upset about this. Now, obviously, that is what occurred. And obviously, that was a problem. (sighs) I don't know that this was the first time that first officer touched the controls with passengers. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But the fact that regulations allowed that to potentially happen is very bad. It's horrible. It's completely negligent, actually. So that's all I have, only because I know Nick's going to get into it. Yeah, there's a lot of other things we still got to talk about, too. So there's my layers. (sighs) But... uh... But we why? told you. This we one, warned you. This one is why? so complicated. What? Why? There were so many things that went wrong. Like, this whole operation, the whole everything that happened there just seems so amateurish. The it's whole thing was terrible. just... terrible. It was... It, like, every piece of this puzzle was just... Garbage? Complete. You know what completely, like, me off, too, is 
you have a captain, right? Mm-hmm. There's two people in this cockpit. Mm-hmm. Neither of them thought we haven't gotten any confirmation from ATC to do anything. Mm-hmm. But they were like, oh, yeah, let's go taxi. Mm-hmm. Let's go get de-iced. Mm-hmm. This is their let's first time. Line. This is their first mm-hmm. time getting de-iced on a DC nine. Mm-hmm. But my issue isn't that it's the first time they're getting de-iced on a DC nine. Mm-hmm. My issue is there's two people in the cockpit that are supposed to be competent pilots, and neither of them said anything. Got any confirmation from ATC to do anything, and then they went and did it anyway. You're and correct. neither of them were like, "Wow, this is weird," and then they wonder why ATC is not talking to them. You're correct. I, You're right. That's the thing that me off the most You're because right. if they had just waited, yep, this wouldn't have happened. Yep, like straight up. Yep. If you had waited for ATC to talk to you, or and if, if you had asked for taxi clearance, and if you had been sequenced properly, then this would not have happened. You're correct. But you decided to taxi your ass over by yourself and go line up by yourself without talking to ATC, and then you get off when you have to wait in line. And have people go around you because they don't know who the hell you are. Right. Now, I know there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle still that are kind of questionable. And also, it, nece- it wouldn't necessarily have prevented the accident because, yes, the de-icing, the, the icing that was on the wing contributed to the stall. But but he still rotated to the stall angle right. of attack. He still, yeah, rotated far too quickly, caused the compressor stalls, and ultimately they were airborne for so little time. That the airplane, I mean, it just came right back down. They were so low. And they that they was, only that's, made it 20 feet. That same thing probably would have still happened, to be honest. It just, it's amazing to me how companies, I mean, they don't do this now, right? We, we've learned yeah, yeah. this. But it's amazing to me, even back then, how companies R-M. were so worried about making money that they mm-hmm. didn't make good crew decisions. Mm-hmm. Like, just putting correct crew together. Mm-hmm. They were like, look, certified captain. Look, certified first officer. But Neglect don't look, hours. Yeah, but don't look at their <laughs> hours or their training. Right. Like, if they had looked at that first officer's training, would they have put him with such an inexperienced captain? Mm-hmm. No, they would not have. Right. But they didn't look at his training. They didn't look at his hours. And they decided to pair these two up just because. That me off. There's another note that I didn't put in here that um, would you off even more. What did I miss? During that period of time where they were sitting waiting for air traffic control to get back to them. Oh, they had a non-sterile cockpit. They were just chit-chatting. It was, it was almost a footnote in the analysis. Mm-hmm. It was almost a footnote in the story. <laughs> so it's all not of a sentence only long. are they having issues with the fact that like they're not doing any of this correctly, but they're also distracting each other by talking. Instead of focusing on the fact that I, I feel like, ugh, I don't know, it's, this whole thing is just horrible. You are correct. It's so bad. So... So much negligence. Yes. Let's... I would like to clarify that all of our laughing was at Miranda's reactions, not at the situation. No, the situation's horrible. You guys can't see my face. Um, Yeah. It's quite hilarious. I have a hard time masking my expressions. And that's okay. So... Unfortunately, Caitlin is not here to film TikToks. Otherwise, I think she would have had a hell of a time. So, the situation is horrible. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. And I got more things to talk about. Break, break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right. Miranda asked the question during this Why very short... Why the f*** we have ground radar? I, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit because I have my sneaking suspicion, but the fun part is they don't actually put that in the report. What? We'll talk about it. It Are should be pretty glaringly... radar? It should be pretty glaringly obvious what the answer to that question is. We'll talk about it. Oh, <laughs> why are we going to install ground radar when we're going to get a new airport? airport? <laughs> yeah. You know what? You you they weren't it. investing much money into this airport because they were like, okay, it's at its limit. We're literally going to tear it down in just a few years. When did... Let's just build new. When did construction on the current Denver International Airport yeah, yeah. commence? Long before it now, opened. Now I got to Google it. Look what you done did. Google it, but long before it opened. It was a very big project, and it took a very long I time. I mean, our airport is huge. Massive. <laughs> if you've ever been to DIA. It is hard to contemplate just exactly how very big. big this place is. Just to correct you, because Miranda answered correctly before, and you answered incorrectly. It did commence operations in 1995. 95, okay, yeah. Thank you. Still. I thought it was 95. So, okay, 95. Still not that long from when, we've, when we're talking about here. Almost 10 years, but that, I mean. Eight years. They're yes. probably already in the works, though. Very, well, yeah, very, I mean, very in the works. It's going to take a long time to build the entire airport and the runways and all very the terminals and massive the infrastructure and stuff. project. Okay, only because I know chances are we're probably going to forget to cite this on the website. This information that I'm about to read is pulled from the Denver International Airport Wikipedia page. From 1980 to 1983, the Denver Regional Council of Governments investigated areas for a new airport north and east of Denver. Guess what? That's what happened. Yeah. Meanwhile, That's where we had space. Yes. Meanwhile, in 1983, Federico Peña was elected mayor of Denver, campaigning on a plan to expand Stapleton onto Rocky Mountain Arsenal lands. The plan for broad support, but leaders in nearby Adams County threatened to sue over noise concerns. So, okay, but here's the other problem with it being on the arsenal is there's still radioactive over there. Um, Let's and- not with it it's yeah. yeah they had to clean it up i mean the government cleaned it up but there's still stuff over there because uh that's why it's not there's a land. school over there really that, fun fact yeah. if you go look at denver like most cities are of course big round blobs most of the major cities on earth are big round blobs of city denver has a big giant pie piece cut out of it in the northeast corner that follows pena boulevard <laughs> right which is named for Federico Pena. Yep. Which actually, I was just going to say, that's why Pena is Pena. Yes, so it good, is. Good to know. So that whole thing, that the whole reason for that is because of the arsenal and the contamination, which go look that one up. It's a fun story, too. But that's nu- unrelated to us. Nuclear plus commercial aviation industry. Don't usually mix well. No. So let me continue. Eventually, Pena, the mayor, not the road, struck a deal. Adams County's leaders would rally citizens to back a plan for Denver to annex 54 square miles, now 57, of the county to build an airport away from established neighborhoods. In 1988, after this crash, Mm -hmm. Adams County voters approved the annexation. The proposal was met with some skepticism because of its location, 24 miles from the heart of the city. I also question this, but I also understand. Most people still are like, why is the downtown so far away? But seeing the importance of a Denver air hub to the national transportation system, as you may have noticed by DIA's recent um, statistics. In size. Ridiculous amount of The federal government put $500 million, equivalent to today's $1 billion, Mm-hmm. towards the new airport. Wow. The rest of the cost would be financed by bonds to be repaid with fees on airlines. Ground was broken in September of 1989. So it was very much not long after this, but they were already working this starting in between 80 and 83, working yep. on a new airport plan. 
So. So there's your history lesson. If that's not telling, I don't know what is. But seriously, like, go put into Google Maps City and County of Denver and look at the weird <laughs> They had boundaries. to redraw the yeah, lines. Yeah, they redrew the lines. We've talked about it before, but they had to redraw the lines so it went around the airport. It follows I-70 so, to Pena and then up around Pena and then just the airport. <laughs> and, uh, so, because we live in Aurora, right? Which is actually pretty close to the airport. We live about 20 It would away. be in Aurora. It would be. So yes. you'll see there's the... City and County of Denver, <laughs> and then right next to it's Aurora, because yes. that's what Aurora is. actually is now, the, so- the area south of the airport is now Green, Green Valley, Valley Ranch. Ranch. It is Green Valley Ranch. They started developing this whole new big giant uh, suburb. suburb, which was geared towards airport employees, most of which still don't live in Green Valley Ranch. Because no. it's super expensive. Yes. It's so expensive. We're airport yes. employees. You think you- we can afford Green Valley Ranch? Right. So, and it's still, like, it's, it bothers a lot of people out at the airport because they're like... Why are you doing exactly what you are not supposed to do with this airport we built in the middle of nowhere to be around no one on purpose? (laughs) Why are you putting people near the airport? (laughs) (laughs) There's literally, if you fly over it right now, they're going to triple the size of Green Valley Ranch like that. And it's all right under the approach, which is just freaking moronic to me because they never should have zoned it that way. They never should have zoned it that way. Yeah, but if they can make money developing houses out there. You can also make money putting warehouses there well we do have warehouses out there yes but now they're putting houses instead <laughs> and they have hotels there's a lot of hotels yes out there. then they're gonna put more of those there are things I'm and there's a giant five-star resort also any guesses as to the largest employer in colorado it's the airport is it the airport it's the airport in most states statistically it's walmart yeah in washington it's boeing Yep. Which makes sense. Yes. Certain states, it's like the biggest university in the state. Yep. We're, I think, the only state where it's the airport. The airport. It's because the airport's huge and needs a lot of employees. It is unbelievably large, and it's hard to fathom until you really go there, or even just look at it on a map and start scaling it compared to other things. Like, okay, I try to explain this to people, and sometimes it's really hard to put in perspective, but the size of Denver International, the new airport. We could literally fit the old airport in it like six times over. Yeah. You can fit JFK in Denver International Airport, the current one, ten times over. It is that small compared to our airport. JFK is a crammed up mess. Why that airport still exists. Yes. Because it's in the middle of the freaking city. Yeah. (laughs) Why that airport still exists the way it does, I have no idea. I hate that airport. And it's crazy. I mean, Denver International is massive. Massive. It, it is, is massive. really hard to put into perspective just how much area this airport took. But you up. also have to consider that a large portion, if not the majority, of people who pass through that airport don't stay. Oh, no. Nope, 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 nope. Which is why I can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. It does have a lot of local traffic, though. Our throughput at TSA is one of the highest in the country, too, so it's both. Like, we have a massive amount of connecting traffic, but we also have a massive amount of local traffic. Anyway, so thank you for attending our spiel about Denver International Airport, which happens every so often. Yes, let's talk about the findings. There's actually quite a few of these, and I'm doing quite a few of them, but not all. They found that Continental's DC-9 training program met and in some instances exceeded the minimum federal requirements and accepted industry standards. Kind of. I literally read that entire quote. Yes. Most of these, to be clear, even though there's quite a few findings, they're all that short. So I love I love these succinct reports. Thank you, old NTSB. Please bring this back. <laughs> I really wish. Instead of arguing over one word. And then writing freaking legalized par- legalese paragraphs because they are You're supposed so to be so hard to read. Aviation industry standard accessible, not legalese. Right. So anyway, 
all that to say, their minimum training requirements, the DC-9 and their training program, was technically regarded as a very good one. Because it had been around for so long. It was the oldest for the airline. Yeah, because they had the airplanes for so freaking long. <laughs> the airplane wasn't new anymore. The DC-9 was just like a decade from starting to be phased out of everybody's fleets. Although, they still lasted another two decades beyond that. So, that's a thing. So... All of that to say, too, that even though their training program was very good, obviously there were deficiencies. Things slipped through the cracks. Yes. You think? <laughs> they found that, although the captain and the first officer were experienced aviators, the captain was not experienced in the DC-9, and the first officer was not experienced in the DC-9 or in any way swept wing turbojet airplane. Which is significant because that affects the stall characteristics of the aircraft. Yeah. Which right. I didn't really talk about all that much because... It's conceptually difficult mm -hmm. to understand and also maybe an unnecessary explanation given yeah. the sequence of events. It was a factor, but ultimately it was just the, the, the chaos of putting two unexperienced pilots on the DC-9 yeah. together. Yeah. They found that due to the relatively low experience levels of both crew members in the DC-9, the pairing of these pilots was inappropriate. No Wow, really? <laughs> you came up with that one on your own? Wow. What a surprise. <laughs> Found that the first officer had a record of performance difficulties before joining Continental and continued to have difficulty in Continental's DC-9 training program. They knew. Yes, they did. So even though they maybe didn't, maybe didn't know about their, his history, he went through the program and they knew. Now, ultimately, they certified him. And maybe they shouldn't have. Maybe. Because obviously he had deficiencies. Recorded deficiencies. And then it happened. On top of that, here's something else we didn't talk about. They found that the first officer's absence from flight duties for 24 days before the accident probably eroded his retention of newly acquired knowledge and skills associated with his duties. I didn't even see that, to be honest. For 24 days, he didn't do anything. For almost an entire month, he did not fly for Continental. Which is crazy! I think they have He'd, currency requirements now. That well, yeah, when you first get your currency, your, your, your typewriting on an aircraft... They're going to work you to the bone because they got to cram that in on your head. You got to get all as much experience as you can so that it becomes second nature. Second nature. That's how we beat human factors training. It's part of it. It's one part of it. Very small part of it. But and it's how we, you know, make CRM accessible and work. But they didn't do that. So he had the time to basically lose all of that information and how fast he pulled up on that rotation. Mm -hmm was maybe a sign of that. They found that Continental's background screening for the first officer was inadequate because it uh -huh. failed to reveal significant training difficulties he experienced with other operators. However, I would say that's not necessarily their fault because it was also not disclosed to them. Right, correct. And this begs that, that question again about the federal database for Yeah, which records. we've discussed and is being implemented. Yes, that is a very long working thing still. Found that during the 27 minutes between de-ice and takeoff, the airplane accumulated an unknown amount of contamination on portions of its uplifting surfaces during a moderate wet snowstorm. Pretty self-explanatory. They found that the flight crew of Flight 1713 contributed to the delay before takeoff because they taxied without proper ATC clearance from the gate to the de-ice pad and from the de-ice pad to the run-up pad for runway 35 left. Yeah! Maybe, I don't know, don't do that. Yeah, they did that. No, they just they just literally didn't say anything, and they're like, we're here now. We're here now. 
No, no. And everybody's like, who's here now? Who's here where? Who are you? What is where, happening? Where did you come from? Where did you go? <laughs> to add to the confusion, and this is another point we didn't touch on, this is how bad this air traffic control communication was. Not just the air traffic controllers themselves, the planes, and obviously just the way that they were allowed to get away with the world yeah. here. How Continental just didn't do anything. And the air traffic controllers never threw a fit about it. Because this kind of stuff would just never happen. They found that the flight crew of Flight 594 contributed to the delay before takeoff because they taxied contrary to the air traffic controller's clearance from the gate to the DI's pad. They were given clearance to taxi to the runway. They didn't clarify to the air traffic controller themselves and say, no, we need to get de-iced. So they went straight to the DI's pad after being given clearance to taxi to the runway. So they went against clearance. That's why the confusion doubled. So... Already we have this airplane that's talking about being somewhere that nobody had a clue this airplane even existed. And then there's another one that they did know existed because they made a request, but they went somewhere other than where they were told to go and never clarified it. And because of that, they're now thinking that Flight 594 is at the runway. Yeah. In the way of everybody. It ain't. And it's not. It's not even close. (laughs) It has nothing to do with any of that. So all of that. And the third factor, they found that the air traffic controller personnel contributed to the delay before takeoff because they failed to properly identify the location and destination of Continental Flights 1713 and 594 as they taxied from their respective gates to the DI's facility and from the DI's pad to the run-up pad for runway 35 left. Yep. Pretty straightforward. All of that, I mean, air traffic control was a mess. A mess. They didn't have ground radar. So they're having to try to keep a visual picture and deal with these freaking flight strips, and it's a mess. Holy crap, was it a mess? Yeah, no kidding. They can't see anything. They have no idea where anybody is. Who and anybody is. Would a, would a ground radar have been transferable to the new airport? Should they have just bought it anyway? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it really needs to be built in. And because it has to do with the surface area as well, but also the I'm way that the new airport is set up. I'm surprised that they waited so long to do that, though. Like, at this point, I understand not doing it in 1987 when you're having talks of having a new airport. Like, I understand mm-hmm. that. But they, ground radar was not new. Right. I mean, I'm surprised it took them, you know, that they didn't have it by the late 80s. Right. With the advanced... And they also tech- only had one tower, right? They had one major control tower, but I think they had a small ramp tower, too. Okay. Which the ramp tower really would have just controlled the ramp area, not necessarily the... Active taxiways. But all that to say, what I don't know is if they did implement some kind of temporary ground radar, which they may have done. They may have found the cheapest one available on the market and installed it. (laughs) Also, the tower at the time was not very big. Is it the tower that's currently Mm -hmm. there? Yeah. It isn't very big. No. But everything was much closer together. (laughs) Okay, but still, you're dealing with weather conditions in Denver. Correct. But I mean, the tower here in Denver now can't see <laughs> what's the, what's the yeah, weather. But you know it's what it has? The first thing to go away. Well, yeah, it has ground radar, of course. But we also have ground towers for that, which can see because they're much lower. <laughs> they're all the way down at like 100 feet instead of like 200 feet. <laughs> what, what a concept. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm not bitter. Also, if you guys haven't gone yet, you should go check out Flight Co. Brewery. It's in the old uh, control tower. Yeah, they're, they're the one making... that we're talking about. They're... Make sure you go to the Flight Co. Tower. Yeah, yeah, Flight Co. Tower, not the one up in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, 
if you go, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you go there, they're working on making the top, the, the tower, t- accessible. the actual tower accessible. Yes. It's someday. not currently because they have to put in, we, we were talking when the, the last time we went there, all of us, we went, we talked to the manager, we talked to the manager and they were like, mm-hmm. yeah, we can't do like the very top yet because every time there's a windstorm or something like the glass shatters, yeah. it's not anti-shatter glass. So they're like making it safe up there because current, it was like dilapidated for so long. No one used the top part of the tower so they gotta make it safe but it'll be like a bookable thing and like it sounds pretty cool we may or may not have it to get together they they have mini golf they got bowling they got pool tables Mm. they got fantastic cocktails and mini golf their food's really good too i've not had a bad thing from there yet nope so anyway not sponsored yet (laughs) yet yet they found that the air traffic controller personnel allowed departing airplanes to remain on the ground too long during the snowstorm while allowing arriving airplanes to land at Stapleton. Okay, listen, I don't think that that was the tower's fault. Mm, a little bit of both. Well, because don't they have the ability to shut down the airport at a certain point? Well, yes. they can, but here's what's happening. It's not that the airport's outside of limits. They absolutely were able to do takeoffs and landings and everything. The biggest problem was, so there's two things going on. One, the flights aren't telling them they're going to the de-ice pads and when right, they're right, done. Right, 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 right. So we don't have tracking on this, which, by the way, at Denver now, we actually have... Each one of the de-ice pads is controlled either by a ramp tower or has its own. Yeah, there's each airline one. has its own. There's like there's their own little tower actually next to the common use common use uh, de-ice pad that most airlines, most of the other airlines use, and then the two majors, Southwest and United, have their own pads which are controlled by their own ramp towers. So, but also they know. And there's timers for all of this stuff, by the way. But also, the crew... And this was never pointed out, and Mm -hmm. I'm just now thinking about it, and I think it should have been. Mm -hmm. The crew had the right to say, no, we have to go de-ice again. It's been too long. Yes. That is also their responsibility. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Now, what are they saying when they're talking about landing aircraft, though? Well, one thing that we didn't mention as well. While they were sitting there waiting to take off, the airplane ahead of them got... The permission to take off, and then a couple of airplanes actually were cleared to land on three five left rather than three five right. Oh, in the middle of all of these other airplanes taking off, which they... adds to the time. <laughs> it turns out one of them was a GA airplane. Oh. They gave a tail number and everything, and then they just said another airplane behind that one was six minutes later. So it adds time. It adds a lot of time. I would be surprised that a GA airplane would be flying in such bad weather conditions. Me too, actually. I mean, yes, unless no, it's really a depends. private jet. Maybe. Yeah, it could be a jet, could be, you know, some kind of a turboprop king air, something like that. Who knows? Did Signature have a ramp at Stapleton? I don't know if Signature did, but they had a massive GA area. Quite a bit, actually, of GA area at Stapleton because it was so close to the city. And now we don't have an airport close to the city like nope. that. Yeah, so, all of you guys, go to Centennial. Or or Jeffco, Rocky Mountain. Which, which my dad is a huge proponent of. Mm-hmm. That's because he lives by there now. And it gives, Both airports are really good, though. It gives him business. Yes. Both airports are really good. Both airports are really good. I would, I would recommend either one. Your face is really They're good. They're both very busy, though. So, yes, there's GA area, and there was GA airplane landing. It happens. I mean, even 182s can technically fly in it as long as the pilots are okay with the conditions. They're aware that icing could happen, things like that, and it's instrument rated. I don't know. They technically have the right. I I, I will be a little bit scared. <laughs> well, yeah. Most pilots fly in won't it. do that. But also most, it was probably a jet of some kind. Most 182s won't just uh, fly to DIA. 
No, oh, but again, no, they had they a probably big... probably go to Front Range. But again, they had a big GA pad. Or so. Spaceport, depending on who you are. If you go back into the historical thing, I'll show you where it is because you're not going to be able to see your... it. I'll go into your... Never mind. So it's really hard to find this GA area in this picture, but this airport actually has six runways, not four. I know you're looking at four. There's six. Find the other two. I dare you. So there's one. Yeah. So this is the whole GA area. They have a whole extra. Okay, basically. then why the hell are they running? They landing on three five left. Weather. I know. Don't talk to me. Right. <laughs> Don't <ILS>. talk to me. <laughs> find the sixth one. Where the? I almost guarantee you're not going to find it. Where? It exists. Tell me. I'll tell you it runs east to west. That's all I'll tell you. <laughs> find it. I think you showed us. Is that a taxiway or a runway? That's a great question. You. Zoom in. That's all I have to say. Zoom way That's a in. runway. That's a runway. Yeah. It's closed. One of the taxiways was a runway for a period of time. They had six. I don't like you. I know. Anyways. They found that during the 30 minutes before takeoff, the pilots of Flight 1713 did not discuss airfoil surface contamination, and they did not visually inspect the wings before takeoff. So another thing the crew never did, because, I don't know, they were inexperienced. In icing conditions in on icing this conditions. aircraft. They never questioned. After they got de-iced, they just gone. They're like, yeah, we're de-iced. Done. Didn't even think about it. Didn't look at contamination, didn't discuss it, didn't want to find out. Turns Nothing. out that's not how that works. Uh, a note to that. The airplane that went around them noted that they had ice on their wings, but only a little bit, very small patches. That captain wrote a report and should have said something over the radio. Probably well, I mean, would have been a good idea, especially because they were also know. continental. He didn't know that they wouldn't have saw. I mean, you would assume like I hate the word assume, right? Yeah, but we don't use that in aviation. You would make an an inference. Sure. That the captain on that flight, at least, if not both pilots, mm -hmm. were trained enough mm -hmm. to look at their wings. You would think being airline pilots, yes, but no. Yes, but my you, that would be what, if I was a captain, right, and I went by that airplane yep. and they had ice, my first thing would not be to be like, oh, hey, you have ice. My but, first thought would be, they are experienced people, they should know they have ice on their wings. But, but, the but at the same time... I'm playing devil's advocate, damn <laughs> it. But at the same time, you and I are like, we, we've talked about this, if I see ice on the wing, I am hitting that call button, I'm getting the flight attendant to get there over here to tell them that I see ice on the wing and that right. is a problem. Taking off my understanding hat and putting on my do it anyway hat. When you see it, you say something. Again with the see devil's advocate. Yeah, but I gotta take off I, the understanding I understand. Hat. Stop understanding. That they didn't <laughs> do that. So I also understand that if we were people who saw ice, ice on the wing, we would have put, hello, we gotta go get the ice <laughs> There's ice and I don't want to die. We've okay? been sitting here way too long. Now, there is a, a little blurb that was mentioned and it was deemed to be irrelevant or at least not particularly relevant to the situation. And it was that the European standard for de-icing fluid was mm -hmm. to have a much stronger de-icing fluid. Glycol. Yep. To have a much heavier glycol ratio such that it would have improved de-icing capabilities by two and a half times. And may have prevented this incident in part. Great. No. They did go to glycol because I talked about it in the Air Florida Flight 90. Yeah, well, we it still... was talking about the ratio. Right. And it was saying that the European standard was superior. Much higher, yes. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. true, but the point that it the would... NTSB made was that this ratio works. 
as long as you stay within the parameters. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. And further, actually, I mean, Denver's de-icing has always been a pretty good system. It's just still is. It's gotten better, actually. Uh huh. It's even better now. It's a very guess how many very air- efficient. Guess how many airports recycle the de-icing fluid that goes along the ground? Hey, that's us. Probably some of the newer ones do too, but that's us. Because it's expensive. Yes. And also very high, very not great for the environment. <laughs> so it makes sense. I'm slightly questioning of the airports that just like de-ice at the gate. It just doesn't seem great it's for the people really that have to work. It's not economical anymore. It's not economical. And also like all the ramp staff that are there and have to like work there after. Like if you have an airplane immediately afterward on the gate, like gross. That stuff is slippery. Yeah. It's nasty. It's not good. Anyways. They have procedures for it. There's lots of SOPs because of that. But they found that the first officer rotated the airplane for takeoff at a rate about twice the normal rate, and the captain failed to arrest this rapid rotation. CRM didn't even happen, but they didn't even have much time to think about it. So, you know, they found that several engine surges just before impact were attributed to disturbed airflow into the intakes due to the unusual attitudes of the airplane. Way contrary to the whole de-icing and icing and snowstorm and everything, this is ultimately what led to the accident. That's the ultimate thing there. That's why, like, all of these other peripheral discussions that we're having about air traffic control, about sequencing, about icing, they about de-icing. They're contributory. They're contributory, but ultimately... Not causal. He pulled up too hard and they stalled. Amazingly, the real problem had entirely to do with crew training. Yes. Voila, we have layers. Like an onion or an ogre. Yep. They found that shortly after the airplane became airborne, a portion of the wings stalled and the airplane descended to the ground. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. We know that. And you were barely off the ground, so there was no chance of recovery. Right. That was the left wing, and the left wing was the first thing that hit the ground. They found that by applying a maximum effective strength glycol solution after de-icing, anti-ice protection could have been increased by a time factor of 2.8 over the 38% glycol solution used on Sorry, I rounded. Oh, whatever. So that's basically what they're saying, the, the European thing. They threw it in there, and yes, great. Okay. That's it for the findings. Okay. The probable cause, as always, verbatim, from the report, short and sweet. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's failure to have the plane de-iced a second time after a delay before takeoff that led to upper wing surface contamination and a loss of control during rapid takeoff rotation by the first officer. Contributing to the accident were the absence of regulatory management controls governing operations by newly qualified flight crew members and the confusion that existed between the flight crew and air traffic controllers that led to the delay in departure. So, what I said earlier that they hadn't discussed before but made the probable cause was the choice to not get de-iced a second time. Right. Right. Which, everything almost we've talked about to this point, they all put as contributing. Yes. And quite frankly, I still don't think that this is the absolute cause. I still think the cause was the over-rotation, which is in there, but they blamed the fact of the matter is, they still over-rotated to the stall angle of attack. Right. Well, and they pinned it kind of on the captain, saying that it was the captain's lack of decision-making. That was his call. Which, of course, his CRM was pretty bad. He was new on the DC-9. But it should have been the flight crew's decision to not... It should have. And I think it's interesting that they said contributing, or contributory, factor was the regulatory or management controls governing operations of newly qualified flight crew members, when really this, to me, is root cause. If you use the, the wise method or the five whys in specific, and you go, why, 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 why? Why did this happen? 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 Eventually, you get to the probable cause, the actual root cause. This was the root cause of it all. The whole thing. 
The flight crew didn't communicate with air traffic control. They took too long with everything. They didn't communicate properly. They didn't have good CRM. The captain didn't arrest everything because there was no regulations in place about new crew members being paired together in the U.S. This has changed. Needless to say. So let's do some recommendations. These ones read a little bit longer. Don't love that, but I'm going to read through some of these. They recommend that until such time that guidelines for detecting upper wing surface icing can be incorporated into the airplane flight manual, issue an air carrier operations bulletin directing all principal operations inspectors to require that all McDonnell Douglas DC-910 series operators anti-ice airplanes with maximum effective strength glycol solution when icing conditions exist. So I understand why this recommendation was made because the DC-9 itself is so particularly prone to poor performance after icing conditions. Mm -hmm. And they're also old, so they were not built with fantastic de-icing solutions. Correct. This problem has been resolved because we don't fly DC-9s anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I mean, they're used for cargo sometimes, right? Very rarely. There's also a few for charter in the world, but yes. I saw one in Kansas City. Wow. Just the other week. They're old. They're yes. old airplanes. They're not used very much anymore because, especially since, you know, McDonnell Douglas went out of business. Parts are hard to source. They're very expensive to operate these days. Very expensive to operate they don't make much operational sense they're also just gas guzzlers compared to modern airplanes they it's, were efficient at the time and now they are horribly like inefficient machines. driving a, a 1990 like ford truck right when gas was like 10 cents a gallon this made a lot of sense and was fine and now if it you don't operate so much no more. now if you operate it today you eat through a gallon a minute <laughs> and you end up spending a hundred dollars for and you really regret it filling up your tank yep every time so yeah that they recommend requiring all DC-910 series operators to establish detailed procedures for detecting upper wing ice before takeoff. So now it needs to be standard for crew members to check for contamination should they be sitting around for a minute. That's like on the DC-9. An entire thing. Like, that's a thing. Yes. That you just should have been doing, period. Yes. Of course, they weren't in sterile cockpit either. And they weren't trained on de-icing procedures in the DC-9. They recommend establishing minimum experience levels for each pilot in command and second in command pilot and require the use of such criteria to prohibit the pairing on the same flight of pilots who have less than the minimum experience in their respective positions. No, really. This is a pretty easy one to fix, honestly. And I understand why this causes a lot of crew constraints, but at the same time, you figure it out. You have to. You have to figure it out. It's the right thing to do. So ultimately, there's regulations on this now, and I don't remember what all of the minimums are, but there's a minimum number of hours that the captain and the first officer have to have to work together. And if you're going to have one that's under an experience level, the other one has to be above a certain hour level on the airplane. It's kind of like putting this into my field, right? Mm -hmm. If you took a first year teacher mm -hmm. and paired them with a teacher who'd been teaching for a year and a half. Right. It's great. Right. You have a little bit of experience, yep. but are you going to get much help? Probably right. not. Instead of pairing a first-year teacher with someone who's been at that school for 10 years. Right. A little bit different. Right. The other thing that's happened, and while this was still a thing back then, this is a lot more common practice now and is a lot harder to get around, is a captain is going to have a lot more experience on the airplane as a captain because now we don't do direct entry captains as often where they come in and they get type rated on an airplane directly as captain. They instead get type rated first as a first officer 
As they should. Grow a bunch of hours as first officer and then switch to captain. This is a lot more common practice now. A lot more common practice now. But it was happening back then, too. It just makes a lot more sense. You build time in the right seat, learning from the experienced person in the left seat. Right. You know, you you work together as a crew well, and then eventually you get the honor of being in that left seat and teaching and being the experienced pilot. That's how that works. That just seems smart. Now, of course, the captain in this case had more hours overall, but he came in direct entry. He had very low hours on the DC-9. He should have had more hours on the DC-9 as a captain because he should have gone through the first officer portion first, but they didn't do that. So even if... Like, let's say United pilot. Mm-hmm. He's was a, a captain for United mm-hmm. for 10 years. Mm-hmm. If he switched to Delta, he mm-hmm. would have to start as a first officer. Not necessarily. If it's the same type of aircraft, sure. If it's a 737 to a 737, then we can say, do a direct entry captain because he's got say, experience on but that. But let's say it's a 737 to, to a 777. Now we should do a first officer. Well, and not only that, but then it's a wide body. But to go something comparable, 737 to an A320, right. probably still starting first officer. Right. Now, there's so many caveats to that and the unions and everything that make this a difficult thing. But they do, they do that because... That's not to say we don't to. support unions. We support unions. Right. I am, I'm a teacher. I'm part of a union. <laughs> but what you'll find now is really interesting. Pilots, it used to be that they got typerated on so many types of aircraft over the years. Which we've talked about. They work their way up aircraft. This actually doesn't happen as much anymore. Yeah, usually you just get Stick on with an the same airplane. Yeah, you aircraft. Yeah. You, you pick the aircraft you're going to get typerated on with an airline, and you're probably going to stay on that your entire airline career. Because honestly, you're going to be making probably just as much money eventually and it's hard to say like you become very experienced on that airplane it's very good for you there's pretty much no airplane in today's aviation industry that you would fail on like career-wise no they're quite good airplanes the training processes are very good these days but not only that like you can stick with a 737 for life oh yeah Oh, yeah. You don't yeah. need to grow to a wide body. Now, that doesn't mean you can get type rated on, well, because you don't have to get type rated. You just have to have a supplement. But changing different types of 737s, yeah, okay. Sure. Now, people do, they change types, and it's not unheard of. It absolutely happens still quite a bit. Now, that said, pilots, they do change types these days. I mean, they still it still happens. Like, people will go from the 737, they'll work that for a very long time, and then eventually they say, I'm going to work the 777 from now on, or the 78. Great. They'll find a way to make that happen, but... The reason that they don't do that as often and the reason that they discourage that and how they discourage that is because they're going to make you go to the first officer position for a certain number of hours, which is much like starting over. So it's like going from, you know, high school to college where you go from being the senior back to the freshman again. It's the same thing. It's like you go back to the bottom of the experience pool, basically, on the aircraft type. You go back to the bottom of the pay rating, the pay scale on the aircraft type, too. So this is why... This is how they basically discourage pilots from changing types all the time and just staying on their type. They recommend amending 14 CFR 121.434 to require that a second-in-command pilot complete initial operating experience for that position while actually performing the duties of a second-in-command under the supervision of a check pilot. You mean you should train while actually being at the controls? You mean if you're going to operate an airplane with passengers in it, you should have a supervisor. What? When you're doing it for the first time. What? Not just be put on a, an airplane. Crazy. Nobody there, basically. That's crazy. What crazy a talk. Thought. That's if I were to like student teach. 
it's hard to believe that in ni- it took it until 1987 for us to really consider changing that. I mean, we that, I, I guess not. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure they considered changing that. But for this to be such a prominent recommendation, it's amazing that it took until 1987 for that to be a thing. It really is. Like, we didn't face this before? <laughs> Apparently not. Or we just didn't talk about it. We've talked about it. So I know it is. Anyways. They recommend reviewing and revising as necessary the engineer performance standards for appropriate airports to account for the reduced airport capacities that occur when de-icing operations are in progress. Airports cannot operate at full tilt while they're doing de-icing operations. They nope. can't. They can't. It does not happen because you're going to cause delays on aircraft getting off the ground and you simply can't do it. That's why airports have and the FAA actually implements this against the airports so that they have to do it. Whenever weather, significant weather events like this happen, they implement what's called a ground delay program where it forces the airport and the airlines to delay certain a certain percentage of flights so that they're not operating at full capacity in the moment all of the time while the weather's happening. And these happen a lot in Denver, by the way. A lot. Uh, that's because we got a lot of weather, especially uh, recently. Yes. Anytime we have thunderstorms or severe rain, they go on a ground delay program. There's so much rain we've had. Uh, this past week, during the solstice, mm-hmm. we had, like, rivers of hail. Yeah. So cool. It was great. Yep. We had a tornado rip through a suburb. There were two tornadoes. That doesn't happen here now. Oklahoma City, that happens a lot. <laughs> it, it's very rare for a tornado to hit a suburb here. Yeah. It's very it rare. It does not happen. But the weather this year has been real weird. Also, yeah, the fact has. that the suburb was on the west side of Denver. Okay, Aurora's been known to get tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Not Where Highlands, the woods, actually. Not yes. Highlands Ranch. No. Actually, the most common place in the entire metro area that gets tornadoes is <clears throat> the airport. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? It's out east in the middle of nowhere. It's in the northeast in particular, which is happens to be like the furthest place from the mountains, and it happens to be right in the middle of where we get the most severe weather in, yeah. the, front, in the metro area. Yeah. Because I've, it's where the clouds come back down. Okay, so I have a logistical question that you may or may not have the answer to. You actually okay. don't have the answer to. So you know how you have to get like flood insurance specifically? Mm-hmm. Do airlines have to get tornado insurance? I'm sure they just have active God insurance, active basically. Active God insurance in case it gets, you know, demolished by hail. Yes. Well, not or, just hail, but like tornadoes, because it wasn't the big Tennessee airport, but in 2020, a GNA airport in Tennessee got hit by a tornado. Yeah. I know. I remember that. But you and know, then we were like, maybe we should go to Tennessee. And then the pandemic happened. And then we're like, I guess we're not going to Tennessee. Well, you know, the funny thing is airplanes are amazingly resilient against hail. And you know why that actually makes a lot of sense? pressurization, depressurization, they're meant to expand and contract, so they just act like freaking trampolines. Okay. So they actually are pretty resilient. The only things that aren't are compo- Nose cone? composite materials. So guess what aren't good against hail? 8350s and 787s? What do you know? But also nose cones? Yep. They and, always get holes in them. And, and windscreens. Yes. But that's any windscreen. Yeah. I mean, on a car, your windshield, mm-hmm. if you've ever had... We had a... Baseball-sized hail. Yeah, some places had baseball-sized hail. That day, mm-hmm. you can bet your butt um, that plenty of people had broken windshields. Speaking of yep. baseball-sized hail, I know a lot of you guys don't know a whole lot about Colorado, but I know a lot of you guys have heard of the place known as Red Rocks Amphitheater. They had a show going on and had a baseball-sized hail. And they didn't cancel it, and people got injured? Nine people went to the hospital, I think. It was mm-hmm. either seven or nine people went to the hospital. Seven. It was a very poorly handled 
situation too. Like after the fact, they just were not very apologetic about the whole thing. And staff were like shooing away people from getting undercover. And it was just, it was a really ugly situation. Sorry, we definitely made this episode all about us. So, well, I mean, that's what happens when we cover <laughs> This is what happens when we cover a place we can talk a lot about because we know it because we live here and grew up here. Really? What? What? Moving on. They recommend requiring commercial operators to conduct substantive background checks of pilot applicants, which include verification of personal flight records and examination of training, performance, and disciplinary records of previous employers and Federal Aviation Administration of Safety and Enforcement Records. Again, this comes to the database piece. This is currently being solved by the database. You won't have to perform a previous employer check if the previous employer just put everything in a freaking database. But it doesn't help because the previous employer, the first officer, lied anyway. Right. They now, asked the previous employer. Yes, they said, but, yeah, he's a good pilot. But if once we implement this database or finish implementing it. It will be a requirement. It is. An, to enter. It will be an FAA regulation. Right. They will be required to enter all pertinent information. Anything related to the hours, the training, anytime anything goes wrong, they have to log it. And you can bet your ass that if they don't do that, they're going to get their ass sued. Yep. And get big fines for it, too. Only a couple more here. They recommend issuing an airworthiness directive to require more complete operating instructions on the exterior side of the tail cone exit hatch of the DC-9 airplanes. The instructions should include both actions that are required to unlock and open the hatch. One, pull the release handle, and two, push the hatch into the cabin. I forgot it had in, had stairs in, in the tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forgot. it has, it has an ejectable tail. Yeah, it has, I forgot, yeah, that it go... Yeah. <laughs> and How's that going again? The funny thing is, is the DC-9 didn't have like it was a pretty solidly attached ejectable tail cone i would hope so well here's the funny thing the md80 and the md90 notoriously they just fell off during like normal takeoffs and landing like especially a little bit of a hard landing tail cone off now it's in the middle of the runway that just used to happen a lot never did anything crazy like the airplane they just put a new tail cone on it yeah end of story collect the old one repair it Put a new one on it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they could do this stuff like in a turn. Like maintenance had them on the ready. They just pop over, put it on there, sign the logbook, off it goes. I don't love that. But. You know, <laughs> back in the old days. And they did that to the MD-80 and the MD-90 because the DC-9 ones were so hard to get open. <laughs> they were like, we should make it more accessible. And, and then, then they made they it did. too accessible. And then it was too accessible. So then we just got like, rid of shit. it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. They fixed it so that it didn't happen as often, but they... But we also just got... We we junked the concept. Yeah. I mean, airplanes with tail-mounted engines just don't have that kind of thing anymore. It was such a concept to have, like, stairs out of the rear of the aircraft, like the 727, the MD-80, all that. It was also a concept to have, like, the tail cone, the removable tail cone. And that was, like, a thing they tried for a while, but all these things were such complex things to have to maintain and keep and deal no with. No thanks. No thanks. Eventually, they just decided to nix that idea. They said no thanks. Ah, McDonald Douglas. Much better than all those solutions. Actually, Boeing figured it out like that when they built the 737. Instead of putting a tail cone or a staircase out the back, all they did was put a foldable staircase that was automated that was underneath the front door. Wow. It's actually pretty cool. It's built in. And they still have this up. They they now put it on like the A320 and 21. You can get them on it if you do. I didn't know that. Look it up. It's really cool. Your face is really cool. Ryanair has them. What? They still use them. Built-in staircases, that way you can land them anywhere and you can get people in and out. This was the whole concept behind the 737, was an airplane that could be worked on from ground level and operated at ground level. and get guess where that got him. Yeah. 
listen, if they had the original one, due I mean, diligence, it would have been fine. If they had just certified it as a different freaking aircraft. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have to do work at ground level anymore because no. we don't for most aircraft. But so all- we don't need to do the regulations. They only did that because they didn't want to get a new type certificate. <sighs> Should have just done because I had to change the engine to change the entire. Anyway. We can go over that when we cover the max crashes. Anyway. Has anyone recommended that yet? I'm pretty sure. If they haven't, there's definitely someone on Patreon or on Instagram or something that has, and we need to put it on the list. But I'm pretty sure someone has. If you would like to recommend it, say I. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone goes, I! Yeah. Oh, boy. We're going to have to invest time into that one. Yes. So, last one. They recommend implementing company procedures to monitor ground movements of aircraft at Denver Stapleton International Airport during periods of adverse weather when de-icing operations are underway and meter the release of company airplanes from the de-icing facility to eliminate excessive delays before or following de-icing. You know what we solved that with? A ground new freaking airport. airport. Yeah. yeah, ground radar. A new airport. But yeah, that's what they're basically saying. Is They also need to meter it, too, because they need to make sure airplanes that are going into the ice pad, they're now critical, time critical. They got to yeah. get off the ground right away. Which, which you know what solved that? A new airport. Now, I can't give away too much details, but most of the airports work this way. But Denver has one of the most advanced systems in the world where it tracks the airplanes from the moment they push back from the gate to the time that they get to the DI's pad to the time they get to the runway. It's completely automated. We have exact numbers. I mean, ground radar. It knows everything about the airplane at any given moment because the transponder is telling it everything. Those airplanes are so smart these days that it tells the system completely everything they need to know. These systems are so automated at this point that quite literally they have. And when we go to these airport meetings, they give the exact average it takes airplanes to go from the de-ice pad to takeoff and the time to go from taxi to the de-ice pad, from the gate to the de-ice pad. What are those numbers? To be honest, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but I know that from at one point... Is that public information? One of the critical moments... I mean, I'm sure you could probably find these things. It's This is like important things for the airlines to kind of keep track of anyways, because we want to make sure that the airplanes are safe. So What? You want the airplanes <laughs> to be safe? I know. What a concept. With people on board? Huh? So they gave us these statistics, and I mean, the, the statistics are mind-boggling. They, we have a whole team of Is it people. less than 20 minutes? Please. Oh, far less. It's like four and a half minutes. Oh, they have, <laughs> yes, in dev- fact it is. <laughs> they've developed a system in Denver that works unbelievably efficiently well. They literally have the pads set up so that their system of getting airplanes in may take a little while, but for the time for them to get out to the runway, like that. They're oh. first in line when they leave the pad almost always. Wow. That's how they designed it. Well, good job, Denver. Right. I think we did something right. Yep. What? It turns out. Well, okay, so... You know what I'm, like, really proud about? The fact that we have an airport. First of all, it's fairly new. It's a lot newer than a lot of the airports in the U.S. Because a lot of the airports in the U.S., fun fact, if you haven't heard this before from us. Yes. They came from old military bases. Um, yeah. And they so, look like it. Stapleton well, was one of those. Oh, man. Yeah. So Stapleton was one of those. I mean, there's several of them around the country that are very small. And old. In the middle of everything. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't in the middle of everything at one point. Right. <laughs> and now they are. Yeah. And they built around the airports and now they can't expand them, which is why we moved the airport. And I have to say that our airport, the way that it is set up is extremely efficient. Like, intuitive. It's also just intuitive, right? Like it's they, intuitive. Intuitive. There we go. So a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were able to design it. It's one of the only airports in history that was able to be designed 
with basically an unlimited amount of space in the best fashion possible, an airport designer could build it. Right. Now, that being said, it is not without its flaws. No. And when the train under the airport goes down. That is the biggest piece they kind of overlook. Because there's nowhere to walk. But we have a whole team devoted to just that department, too. Like, that is a whole thing. Like, a very large team devoted to figuring that situation out and dealing with those problems. On top of that. We also have the issue of expansion now. Not so much that we don't have room to expand, but in what manner. And how. And what direction. It turns out there's a lot of disagreements with this. There's a lot of space. (laughs) It's just... How we're going to do it. And Um, then there's also the issue of people flow. The airport was designed in the 80s and 90s. There's no way we could have 100 million people go through this airport in a year. Oh, yeah, we can. So. And we're gonna. I'm scared. And it's gonna be soon. And with that, too, I mean, this airport has such unbelievably advanced systems for tracking people, too. Like, again, if you're afraid of, like, government tracking you, we're doing it. Trust me. Well, you go to an airport and you are like instantly a number and a dot on a screen. That's how that works. They track people in every place. They have this very, very advanced people tracking system in Denver that can tell people they tell it tells them exactly how many people are entering and exiting the train at every single door. That's how advanced the system is. You don't realize it, but they yeah, they got this all installed in the last like decade. And now they track exactly how many people enter and exit the train at every single door so that they know exactly how many trains to run every single hour. They know exactly how many. That's scary. And they they adjust for every single hour of the day. You know, I just like that our airport has a lot of bathrooms that have a lot of stalls. <laughs> I agreed. Because I'm tired of going to airports and getting off the airplane and there's six goddamn stalls in the women's bathroom yep. and there's 200 people that just came off the goddamn plane. Right. What's wrong with having more stalls in the bathroom? Right. This is not why I expected the Miranda range for the record. I hate when I have to wait in line at an airport bathroom to go to the... Because guess what? Your girl, 99% of the time, has to go pee real bad when she gets off the airport. And you know where she never has to wait for a bathroom? DIA. Yep. I literally, if if this one's full, I can go down a few feet and there's another one. And there's 20 stalls. And you just, there's plenty of space. Yep. Another quick thing, just, uh, just to end this little rant, TED Talk, whatever. And just how crazy this is. But Denver also, because if you've been through our security lines, you know that they are insane. They are massive. They're huge. They're also out in the open. They're very large. They're very famous for being all over. Anytime they talk about security on the news or it comes up about TSA, anything, for some reason, it's always a B-roll clip of Denver. Always. Because it's very easy to see and be accessible. And it shows this very large line of people. It's also borderline against regulations. Yeah, it is. They're working on that piece. So, that said, it has one of the most intriguing systems I've ever seen. It's also ever. one of the fastest. They're really good. They have been, they put a lot of people through very quickly. Their throughput is unbelievable. We, when we went to, what was the last? St. Louis. St. Louis. We couldn't, we, we usually. We were at the through, end of the line. Yeah, we usually mm-hmm. go through clear. Because mm-hmm. you peasants, why would you not? <laughs> we couldn't because it was, it was too early. It was clear 4 a.m. So we were waiting in line and the line was all the way to the back. Yeah. And, but even when it's back to baggage claim, it it's doesn't take pretty that long darn to quick. get through. Yeah. They're, Nick they're... said it, it takes about 37 minutes from baggage claim to get through security. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the craziest things. If you go and look on Denver's flydenver.com, their website, if you look at the TSA times, a lot of airports actually, they'll do, they, they know based on distance of line 
they've done like timing and that's how they estimate. Denver's is live. What do I mean by live? They track every single person through the line and the system automatically averages exactly how long it's taking people to go through. And every couple of minutes, that number updates because it's taking a new average based on how long it's taking people to go through. If you enter the security line in Denver, you're a dot on a screen. It knows exactly where you are and how long. The system's completely automated. I didn't know I had my own personal stalker. Yep. That that personal (laughs) stalker's name was DIA. DIA. The airport. They have this unbelievably advanced system that does all these things. And it's really crazy. I could have gone a while without knowing that. Thanks. But at the same time, it's really, really, really good for statistics. It's also like pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And it's really cool how it manages to help them determine how to fix the problem. That's why they're building new security lines, because they figured out it's a problem. It's a big throughput problem. You know, they're really good at getting throughput with as many passengers as they have, but they're going to figure out how to do it even better. You know, if they just had both security lines open at any given time, this wouldn't be a freaking problem. Agreed. Anyways. Okay, well, there's our... Big rants, because Denver. Denver. We fixed so many things with a new airport. That's the gist of it. Oh, we have a listener question. Yes, we do. Let me pull it up. I got it. I got you, boo. Don't even. Also, Alan had asked if someone bought a cross-stitch pattern and gave us money for the materials, would we do a cross-stitch for them? Absolutely. The answer is yes. (laughs) I'm sorry, was I too... Is that even a question? Was I too enthusiastic? I will absolutely do it. Bob from... Ireland. Ireland. Bought me a cross-stitch book. Lovely. Happy. Very happy. Please buy me more cross-stitch things. (laughs) Anyone. Okay, this one is from Charlene. This is not in reference to any particular episode. That's okay. I'm going, I shouldn't assume, but I'm going to assume based on your name that you have she, her pronouns. She says, first off, I love the podcast. Well, thank you. Oh, hi, thanks. We put a lot of effort into it. I have thank been, you. I've been binge listening since I have discovered it. You are not the only one. <laughs> There's a lot of people, turns out, that did that. My question <laughs> is, are you going to cover the Airbus Max crashes? First off. That's that's where I got it from. We need to check the... The Boeing? The Boeing Max crashes? Max crashes? Not Airbus. Oh. Yes, that. She said Airbus Max. It's fine. I know what you meant. We know what you meant. The Max crashes. The Max we need crashes. to check our schedule because they might already be on there, but they I maybe I feel not. like I wouldn't Consider know. this a recommendation. I, I and yes, we will so. now that there's reports. The answer to that is yes, we will. We were waiting. We were telling people. We were like, uh, guys, guess what? Um, yeah. The reports are out for both. Like, You, you can, can do it now. Do it now. We've been talking about it since literally the beginning of the podcast. We'd probably do like a two-part episode where it's like one week we do one crash and the next week we do the next crash because those are probably oh, likely yeah. air. Oh, yes. So I am adding them right now to answer your question. You can expect them tentatively because um, I love my brain. You can tentatively expect them March 19th and 26th of next year. I know that's a long time from now, but it's going to. It's going to go fast. It's going to go fast. And on top of that, we got to we got to put in some work for these ones. She continues. I've learned so much about planes since listening. I love planes and love learning about anything. I have very little knowledge of airplanes. LOL. Thank you for this amazing podcast. Most episodes I am laughing with you guys. Keep up the work. Thank you, Charlene. Thanks. Thank you, Charlene. Thanks for laughing with us. Yeah. Thanks. Sometimes or- I like to think I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> or laughing at us. One of the two. Or I don't both. care. Either I don't way. know. We are a disaster. Me. <laughs> That's me. Hello. I'm the problem. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, yeah, that's a whole that's that's going to be a whole thing to cover. But and that's the whole thing, too, is that a lot of people don't know a lot about airplanes, but we like to teach them. And that's why that's the whole point of the podcast. I, I always thought it was so fascinating. And I had so much fun when we were doing our day trips, like the first handful of day trips that we did, where y'all would ask me questions about everything. And I was like, this is fun. Let's keep doing this. 
It's part of why I wanted to do a podcast because we're like, we got to tell people about this stuff. It's fun. Oh, BT Dubs, we are going to do probably a series of episodes about the etiquette of traveling. Of traveling. Yes, the traveling public needs some rework again and we thought for the we modern would, era. We thought we would make it one episode and then we started talking about it and we're like, oh no. And we're not harking back to the past. We're saying, okay, this is a modern era. There's just some traveling etiquette things that y'all need to know because we seem to kind of forget how to be humans when we enter the airport. And or people, like, the the amount of people that don't understand how airports work shock me. And not just how airports work, but like... I don't know, they literally just, brain just falls out of their Like, head. people who can't find their gate. Yeah. Now, to be fair, our airport is very intuitive, so finding your gate shouldn't be an issue. Right. You get Allegedly, off on, but people still f*** it up. They're still like, how, where do I go? Because you get off on A, B, or C, depending right. on what's on your boarding pass. Right. I would check the departure thing when you get up from the train, I, just in case. You but. know, it blows my mind how many people walk up to me every single week with a boarding pass that says, B41, and they walk up to me at A41 and go, where's this flight? I'm supposed to be boarding right now. Well, you're at A41, Don't and you, a did, you didn't go to the B gates, like it says to go to, when you're supposed to go to B41. <laughs> so, we will do a series of episodes when, I don't know, but we will do a series of episodes on uh, airport Here's etiquette. how to not suck at life. Here's how to actually, like... Go to the airport and be at the airport and get on the plane like a normal person. This is something we all have a lot of experience in. And on top of that, I work in this industry and this is my entire career. But we're also so going I've... to have parts about like what to pack, what bag to pack them in, how to dress. Yes. And I have plenty of tips for all of these things. And yes, I am an expert, unquestionably. Um, Please. Actually, all <laughs> of us are experts. Yes, we Thank all are. But quite much. literally, I work in the industry. I, that is my career is <laughs> doing this. <laughs> So, the amount of people that go through security and they don't empty their pockets makes me so... I stood. It is one of the... Believably angry. It is I, one of the only times that I am thankful I have women's clothing because they're like, do you have any anything in your pockets? I'm like, I don't have pockets. Story time. I wish I was kidding. The last time I went through security in Denver, the line that I go through, unfortunately, ends up seeming to be the line that they always take all the wheelchair passengers through. Bless them. I, I know that's a very difficult thing. But this old man, and yes, he was an old man, hobbles through the little metal detector. We're all standing there waiting, 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 waiting. Hobbles through the little metal detector. It goes beep, off. Beep, 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 beep. It goes off. You go, what do you have on you? You have any? No, I don't have anything on me. No, I don't have anything. Do you have a belt buckle? Yeah, I got a belt. Okay, take the belt off. Goes back through. Comes back. Beep, 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 beep. Are you sure you don't have anything on you? Do you have a cell phone? Yeah, I have a cell phone. You got to put that through the machine. So they take the cell phone out, put it through. Goes back through the metal detector. Beep, 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 beep. Do you have anything else on you at all? Do you have anything in your pockets? No, I don't have anything. Do you have a wallet? Yeah, I have a wallet in my back pocket. Oh, my God! <laughs> I wasn't, I'm not even kidding. He went through four times because he had all these different things. He just didn't take off of his person. When they say, do you have anything on you? They're not kidding. Anything in your pockets. Take it out. Anyway, so we're going to have a series of bonus episodes on that. When? I don't know. At some point. Okay, that was Continental Flight 17. I don't remember the rest. 13. 17, 13. <laughs> hey, I remember the first part. That's like big for me, okay? Yes, it is. But I did say it like 20 times, so I'm amazed. Thank you so much for listening. And th thanks. Th I mean, this was a kind of a long episode. So you're welcome. Also, you should check out the Patreon. 
because we got like a lot of stuff on there. Uh, yes. Like my episodes and post episodes and blooper reels. Blooper yes. reels are fun. If you haven't yes. listened to the blooper reels, they are quality content. You also get physical things. Yes, so you do, do get physical things. And you can also get video calls depending on the level. Yes. So check it out. Also check out the merch site. Because now we have intuitive shipping. So the shipping isn't like ridiculously horrible. Did you figure that out? No. Oh. I thought we did. We figured it out together. Anyway. We're going to take a look at that. Thanks for listening. We do appreciate it. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.